to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. At Octagon, their purpose is, and I quote, to create work that earns attention. Through smart partnerships and generous ideas, always built around the stuff your audience really loves, we help you compete for, capture, and ultimately earn the attention of those who matter most to you, end quote. In these current times, I'd argue that that is more important than ever, and it aligns very nicely with what we so often talk about on this show, and that is that sponsorship is about brands accessing an audience that they would otherwise not be able to or as easily be able to access. Octagon understand that we live in a world where time is our most precious commodity and that audiences' patience has never been shorter. As an industry, sponsorship has never had to work harder to gain the attention of people that we're all trying to reach. The way Octagon see it, and again, I quote, there's two ways to go about it. Attention is either bought or it's earned. End quote. And I think we all know which one sponsorship truly seeks to achieve. Joining us on the show to give us a current agency perspective of sponsorship is Andrew Clark, Agency Director at Octagon Australia. Andrew is an integrated marketing specialist with 17 fun-filled years of creativity and problem-solving under his belt. He's seen life from both client and agency sides and he always likes to present a balanced picture to lead projects and the Octagon Australia team. He believes people's passions will change the world that we live in and helping brands find a unique role in this equation, whether through sport, entertainment, culture or causes, is what motivates him. And he joins us later on in the show. Welcome to episode 86 of Inside Sponsorship. I'm Daniel Oyston. It is great to have you listening in on another show and I trust that as much as possible, the sponsorship industry is being as kind as it can to you and your work. Time for some shout outs. The first one goes out to Brad McCabe, managing partner at Sponsor Circle, who connected with me on LinkedIn to let me know that he loves the format and the content of the show. Thanks, Brad. The second shout-out goes to Nitin Rajasikaram, who is a director at Genesis BCW. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Funny side story. I wanted to try and pronounce his name correctly, so I cheekily asked him to record him saying it and send it to me. Anyway, Nitin is in the comms field in India and specialises in sport and connected with me on LinkedIn to let me know that he finds it very insightful and interesting to understand and hear from our guests how different sports and sponsorship markets around the world work. I'm glad that is helpful for you. Before we hear from Andrew Clark, Agency Director at Octagon Australia, Daniel Collier-Hill calls Commercial Director for APAC has kicked off a three-part blog series which focuses on hacking sponsorship and he joins us to discuss part one, which is titled Planning for the Return. Here's Daniel. Daniel, welcome to the show. We briefly touched on it in the last episode of Inside Sponsorship. However, there is going to come a point whereby strategy and planning needs to be allowed to, to get back to normal, whatever it's going to look like these days. Yeah, and and I think rather than pivoting strategy around restrictions and repurposing assets or spend or even revenue, some would suggest that with changes happening in literally every country, there's a a wave coming of returning to activate without restrictions. We just can't pinpoint exactly when that is. And if I can use some sort of an analogy, uh, it's like we're standing on a proverbial beach watching a wave come in, but we're unsure of how quickly that wave is traveling, but we can see it coming in. I'm by no means a, a planning or a strategy expert. So in a three-part series over the next few months, we wanted to look at what some of the best in the industry are doing in, in both planning and preparation. Okay, great. So your first point in looking at that is around hacking strategy. What is hacking strategy all about? Tim Morris, Divisional Manager of Strategy at Gemba, recently wrote about this and, and in my opinion, absolutely nailed it. In a post-COVID world, there is an increasing need for us to have the capacity of what he calls rapid strategic problem solving. And now this is a, a process whereby we can get from the discovery of a problem or a challenge through to stress testing ideas and execution. That needs to happen a lot quicker nowadays. Gemba have got a fantastic approach to this in unpacking problems and identifying a, a clear path to the solution. 
same as Adam Hodge, head of strategy at Octagon and his team have a, another really good methodology of unpacking this type of scenario. But what's really prevalent across both of these guys and across the board is that the trick is not to overcomplicate things. It's actually cut through the clutter of mixed messages and opinions. So there's a couple of things that we can probably pick up from Tim and Adam. Okay, great. So the first thing to pick up from that is to try and speak with a wider group of people in the organization. Yeah, and this is whether you're brand or rights holder, understanding the needs, wants, and general requirements of different departments is going to give you a much deeper understanding of how the business can actually tackle a problem or work through a project. It also gives you a, another perspective on what's actually important to the business across different areas. Data helps us understand a lot about what is happening around us and in the world and getting access to clean, accurate and relevant data is, is the second point to take out of that. And there's probably hundreds of blogs and articles on the importance of data in today's landscape and we're definitely guilty of pumping out a few of those. But the reality is there's now lots of different data sets and sources we can look at. We're almost spoiled for choice. So the key here is to look at the end goal having oversight of what it is you need to show in that report or as an outcome will guide you on which type of data and metrics to look at. And once you've done that, the third thing to take out of it is stress testing the data against the ideas that you and your teams are having. Some people are naturally good with data sets and, and others need to get their hands dirty with it. The happy medium here is to play around with the data and not be afraid of thinking outside of what's considered normal practice. And I'm doing quotation marks with my fingers for the podcast. Uh, and, and look, by this, I, I mean, don't necessarily keep looking at it the same way as you always do. Try something a little bit different. And the fourth thing that you've identified to take out of it is accountability. And that's around setting a time frame to ensure that we keep everyone accountable. The natural project managers will argue that this is the most critical piece, but it's super important. After all, what's the point in planning and setting strategy if we can't execute it in a timely manner? 100% agree. The next big thing that you've written about is, and it's a little bit uncomfortable, but it's about looking at hacking headcount. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, as you sort of nailed it right there, it's undoubtedly the most uncomfortable exercise we're seeing. And it's the mass changes to headcount across rights holders, brands and agencies one of the hardest things to juggle right now is work versus resourcing to do the work. And that's not even mentioning the resourcing or staffing and spend that we attribute to actually bringing in the work. According to results in Walk's 2020 Future of Strategy survey, many strategists suggested that there's a big risk bubbling in the background. And that's whilst reducing headcount offers a, you know, a pretty quick source of cost reduction it stretches the team employed to do a specific function and creates another problem in itself, which personally I can see quite a lot of, and it's, it's definitely there in the background. But I guess with sponsorship requiring varying degrees of account management, creative planning and overall strategy development, it just begins to swallow up more hours than we can collectively give it in an average day. During Gemba's The Big Time Out webinar recently, FIFA's Ross McCall, summed the situation up almost perfectly in that the resilience that sport prides itself on is really being tested. And I think that's really true to the core, highlighting the fact that people are losing jobs and headcount as we knew it in our industry is changing dramatically. And if I can, from our perspective at core and, and what the broader team is seeing is that there's somewhat of a reset in terms of how sports rights holders across the globe are structuring their teams. Some are questioning whether the current org chart, org chart I should say, uh, allows them to really maximize their efforts in the modern day and perhaps presents an opportunity to rehash roles and responsibilities. It's now the classic case of instead of let's just throw money at it and, and people to do a job, perhaps we look at more effective and efficient ways of doing business. Some really great points for everybody to sort of take on board and, and digest there. And this is the first in a, in a three-part series. So what else have you got planned for us in the coming weeks? In part two of our hacking sponsorship series, uh, we look at hacking creative, and this is the impact COVID has had on the creative function and how it plays a, a pivotal role in bringing us closer to audience and fans. And then the second part of that is hacking asset management. Definitely the, the non-sexy part of that 
that piece. But, uh, you know, th- this is really how we're going to begin to tackle the most challenging assets to create, deliver, and then integrate into the broader marketing mix. Excellent. Definitely looking forward to learning more about that. And listeners, if you want to go through over the points that Daniel's just focused on then in slow time and, and want to read the blog, just head to the resources section, click on blogs at coresoftware.com. Daniel Collier-Hill, thanks for joining us on the show once again. Thanks very much, mate. Joining us on the show now to give us a current agency perspective of sponsorship is Andrew Clark, Agency Director at Octagon Australia. At Octagon, their purpose is, and I quote, to create work that earns attention through smart partnerships and generous ideas always built around the stuff your audience really loves. We help you compete for, capture, and ultimately earn the attention of those who matter most to you, end quote. Octagon also understand that we live in a world where our time is the most precious commodity that we have and that audiences' patience has never been shorter. Don't we all know that? And as an industry, sponsorship has never had to work harder to gain the attention of the people that we're trying to reach. The way Octagon see it, and again, I quote, there's two ways to go about it. Attention is either bought or it's earned, end quote. And I think, as I said earlier, we all know which one sponsorship truly seeks to achieve. Now, Andrew is an integrated marketing specialist with 17 fun-filled years of creativity and problem-solving under his belt, and he's seen life from both client and agency sides, and he always likes to present a balanced picture when leading projects and the Octagon Australia team. He believes people's passions will change the world we live in and helping brands find a unique role in this equation, whether it's through sport, entertainment, culture or causes, is what motivates him. Here's Andrew. Andrew, welcome to the show. We always start with an icebreaker question or two just to help the audience get to know you a little bit better. It's a little bit of fun as well. I see on the Octagon website that you're a golfer and it says that you are teetering on single figures. And in fact, from the time that that went up, maybe you've even achieved single figures by now, but it also says that you have your eye on a green jacket. Not sure how realistic that is. So I thought I'd give you the opportunity to tell us about your favorite ever golf shot that you've played. Talk yourself up a little bit. You've called out two dreams there. I think sadly there can only be one reality in that and chance of me putting a green jacket on are slim to, slim to none. But I think, you know, the, the favorite golf shot, I think I, I play quite regularly. So there's not one sort of in, the, in, in my recent rounds that springs to mind. But I tell you, there's a, there's a shot that I keep coming back to. When I was about sort of 13 or 14, my dad took me down to, to play at Wentworth the morning after the BMW Championship. Now he was he was invited by, I think it was British Telecom at the time, and being a good lad, he kind of inquired about the chance of a plus one, and sure enough, that that was going to be me. The drive down, I remember it. You know, Dad gave me the briefing. It was the first time I was, you know, going to be playing in, I guess, what you would call a corporate golf day. So I was told to, you know, mind my p's and q's, and definitely no swearing, and and don't go beating beating the hosts. But um. I remember standing up on the on the first tee. We were the first group off on the day. I was the first to hit in the group, and I nuked it straight down the middle. And I just kind of looked around, and I saw this expression on my dad's face, which was like pride. You know, like he was always a bit nervous about whether your son's going to duff one off the first. And, you know, it, it just went long and straight, and I kind of felt pretty good about life. And, you know, that look on his face was <laughs> pretty quickly replaced by this look of fear as as he steps up and, I think from memory, he, he pulled one left into the trees, which was pretty much how things went from from there on for him. But, you know, I think it's it's a nice memory because I think, you know, hopefully in the fullness of time, I'll get that experience of playing a sport with kids where, you know, my kids, hopefully where you realize that kind of doesn't matter how how you play as long as, as they have fun, which I think he was certainly a good uh, a good demonstration of. Outstanding answer. I love that. I've got a massive smile on my face imagining what that must have looked like to everyone. Now, Andrew, your second icebreaker question, you work a lot in and around sport. What's your earliest memory of attending a live professional sporting event? Earliest memory? I think I I remember actually probably four or five years old. I grew up in a town not too far from Silverstone Racing Track, which actually, actually was the host of the Grand Prix on the weekend, just gone and on the weekend coming up. But they took me down to to Silverstone one weekend to go and meet a family friend of ours who was driving single seaters, 
And that sort of association, the connection to, to the, the competitor meant that we had a bit more access into the pit lane and stuff like that and into the garage. And I can remember, and I think all kids, you know, eyes on stalks, but I was just walking around completely in awe of, of the whole experience and the sounds and, and the speed and, you know, the smells of it all. And I think, you know, I think it's great when you see kids experience things for the first time because there's that real sort of innocent interest that they have with things. You know, they, they don't know of all of the, um, you know, the, the elements around the edges other than what they see. But I just, I just remember feeling really connected to it as a sport, actually, as, as, a, as a, a venue. And it's, it's funny to think, actually, it would have been about 14 years after that point that I was back at Silverstone. Only that time it was me behind the wheel and it was my first semi-pro race. And I think that, you know, that experience, that venue, that sport, I think was probably the, you know, the, the starting point for me in, a, in my career in, in sports and entertainment marketing. Sounds like a magical moment. The world has changed significantly since then. I hate to use the word, but it kind of feels like the only apt word to use. And, and we are in unprecedented times. So I'm curious about, as you watch the world at the moment, is there an activation or a campaign that you've seen recently that you think has been executed well in the context of what we're going through, in the context of COVID-19, or maybe one that you think had reworked or, or pivoted brilliantly in the situations? we've definitely seen both, right? We've seen great out and out creativity and we've seen great pivoting on existing campaign ideas. But I think whichever way you look at it, what creativity has always needed is a big problem to solve. You know, and I think there's no, there's no two ways about it. This year has presented some, some fairly fascinating problems that, that need to be overcome what with fires and, you know, COVID, but also the Black Lives Matter movement. I think very early on, like we saw an awful lot of campaigns break shortly after we, we went into lockdown that were, more brands doing the public service piece, you know, and actually one that sticks to mind, I think actually was produced by consumers as opposed to the brand, but it was a piece of, of work for Guinness. And that type of typical iconic Guinness pint glass image, cleverly the, the, the foam, the head at the top of the beer was actually replaced by a couch and the silhouette at the base of the glass was the, the word stay home. You know, and I, I think that that was something that is what creativity can give us, which is simplicity. You know, and I think that Guinness actually later acknowledged the people that produce that and, you know, that they're, they're, they're willing to sort of um, promote other confident brand, you know, that they're, they're, they're willing to sort of promote others' work, you know, as opposed to necessarily passing it off as their own. But I think fair to say that you know, certainly in my career, you know, we've not lived through such monumental change in our industry for some time. And I think even looking back at the GSC, it was different. You didn't have these these two other elements in there with fires and the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, and I think that brands, brand directors, CMOs, there's there's been a hell of a lot of soul searching going on in the last four months than than at, than at any point in the past. And I think that you know, it's campaigns like Nike's recent spot, "You Can't Stop Us," for me, which you know, just, just sum up a really, really powerful message, which is one of resilience and, and of finding ways forward. You know, and I think that anyone that's seen that spot, and if you haven't, it's the one where there's some incredible sort of archive imagery of of athletes of, of all backgrounds sort of coming together and, and overcoming adversity. You know, and I think those are the types of campaigns that, that will really stand out sort of at this point in time. And I'd, I'd probably say that that's a campaign that was sort of, bespoke and, and created um, around the current climate. If we look at pivoting, I think a bit closer to home and what MasterCard did with the Open, the Golf Open, in their partnership with Top Golf and, and their gaming platform was a brilliant way of recognizing that despite the event being canceled, fans are still interested in the Open. It's always at this time of year. And then the E-Open was a brilliant way of, of engaging those, those fans. So I think we could do a whole separate podcast just on creativity as a result of COVID, but I think there's been some tremendous examples. Speaking of the changes, the fires, Black Lives Matter movement, COVID, we're now at this point, and you made mention of it before, you said that creativity needs a big problem to solve. As such, do you think we, as an industry, were prepared for a pandemic like this? And by that, I mean, did we have or do we have the right skill set or the right mindset and the right people to be able to overcome these challenges or take advantage of the pivots and adapt well? 
I think that we've got the right mindsets. I don't think we had the right sort of training or, or briefing on all of this. Like you don't know problems until they're on your doorstep. And I think that there's only so much sort of stargazing you can do to try and anticipate these things. To sum it up as a word, I'd say, no, we weren't prepared, but it is way more complicated than that. You know, I think that the challenge for us in, in, in the sponsorship sector is that within marketing, it's always been volatile. We are the least understood element of marketing. We require the largest budgets to function. There's discrepancies over origins of deals. There's degrees of integration into overall sort of brand strategy. You know, I think that to be frank, in, in some respects, it's been a disaster waiting to happen. But I think that, I think it was Churchill that said, never waste a good crisis. You know, and I actually think that as an industry, we'll come back stronger as, as, as a result of that because we have to look internally. We have to look, we have to look under the hood and, and sort of get the house in order. You know, and I think a great example of that would be appreciation of IP. You know, I think, don't sort of get too mathematical on this, but I think you could count on two hands the number of brands in this market who have truly integrated their partner's IP into their customer's path to purchase. It just doesn't happen. You know, and I, th I think that most brands would see sponsorship as something for the weekend. You know, and, and that it's therefore not as relevant at other times. And I think that mindset is is utterly wrong. But I think it's also it was permissible because a lot a lot of the value that comes out of, of sponsorship came from media exposure. You know, and I think a, a pandemic and the reduction in, in in exposure as a result has forced marketers to look way more closely at, at just how persuasive IP can be and, and now looking for ways to you know to integrate it better. We're having all sorts of conversations with brands at the moment about bringing disparate brands together with a common purpose. And I think it's, you know, th those are the types of conversations that I think will almost breed a new era of, of partnership marketing. You know, and I think if, if you look overseas and you look at different markets, it's, it's, it's different challenges, but certainly our colleagues in the US, you know, they struggle far less with IP utilization, given historically brands wouldn't normally get apparel branding as part of a deal. And hence, as marketeers, they're much further along in the practice of marketing IP and associations than, than we are in this market, where an awful lot of deal values is propped up by media exposure. You said that we probably have the right mindset, but probably not the right skill set, so to speak. And one of my favorite sayings is that it's not what you know, it's how quickly you can learn. And I'd probably add to that now in the context of this conversation and adapt. So apart from the obvious... How have you seen the sponsorship industry change as a result of COVID? At its core, this industry is about partnership. The clue is in that word, partnership. I think that it's fair to say that things are all great when it's sun and fun. But I think that brands and, and their partners have had to come together in the current climate on different terms and in some cases on, on difficult terms to try and find ways to support each other. You know, and I think we should be proud as an industry that by and large, I think we've done that very well. And there's been very few cases of people just completely ripping the rug from under a partner's feet. You know, I think that there's been a, an appetite to try and find amicable outcomes. But I think that the biggest change, as I mentioned, is, is, is hopefully going to be this, this use of IP, you know, and seeing more integrated thinking. I think that deal structures will change. I think that there'll be more bespoke approaches, which, you know, to be frank, it sh should have been the case for, for some time now. And I think we'll also see a lot more follow through on, on brands. Um, a requirement for measurement, you know, and, and, and evidence of, of, of effectiveness. You know, I think that we've gone on for too long with people saying sponsorship's hard to, to measure and hard to prove. It's not. Actually, there's plenty of information that you can record to be able to prove effectiveness. It comes down to brands' willingness to invest in that area and then to use the information. The comments you made earlier about the conversations that you're having with disparate brands coming together and working together, that sounds really exciting, but that's a, a pivot or a rework of an approach to sponsorship and, and their market that those brands might have already had in place. So I'm wondering, in working to pivot or rework a, an existing sponsorship strategy for clients, where do you even start? The biggest risk you can take with this is assumption that what exists is right. I'm a firm believer that 99% of these deals 
can prove strong value and strong return if you're prepared to invest the time in interrogating what you've got and linking it properly. But effectively, it's, it's like we said earlier, like all of this stuff starts with problems. And I think you've got to get super clear on the problem that you're trying to overcome and strip back to a place where everybody's really clear on what that challenge is, what needs to be addressed, and hence what is the objective view on the role of the sponsorship to solve to solve that challenge. It may be that there are brands with sponsorships out there today that were based on decisions, you know, from yesteryear that that are gathering dust when in actual fact could be used to pivot the brand's perception in the market quite quickly. You know, so I, I think it's a case of ensuring that there's sort of purpose behind what we're trying to do. And I think that very much now we're seeing more and more need for brands to be purpose-driven, but there's very few that inherently are purpose-driven. You know, and I think what sponsorship can and has always given brands, whether it's been used or not, is the ability to, to have meaning. You know, and, and that for me is, is, is the, the missing link. But we'll always start there. We'll always start by trying to get back to the beginning. You, know, you don't go and buy a beautiful classic car with a spot of rust on it and just paint the rust without finding out if you've cut it, cut it out of the chassis. You, know, it's, you have to strip back. You know, and I think that from there, it's a case of then engaging the partners, whether they are existing partners or whether it's educating new partners to ensure that everyone is aware of the jobs to be done. We see far too many proposals cross clients' desks that just appear to be like a find and replace job as opposed to you know genuinely thinking why is it that we can help you solve your problem you know and i think that we've got to go through these motions to make sure that what we end up with is a clear problem with a very clear strategy and a set of partner opportunities with assets that can that can go about solving things it's easy to sit and say that on a on a podcast on a tuesday afternoon and it's somewhat ideal thinking and if you know sometimes i think People listening to this will know that the world's not always ideal. And I think in those scenarios, what we can still do is make sure that everybody is aware of, of what we're trying to achieve, so that there is at least common consensus. But uh, yeah, I mean, we, we actually, when things started getting a bit murky, we developed a, a tool that we called the impact assessment tool, which effectively helps brands identify the impacts of lost value resulting from, you know, cancelled events. You know, and I think that that's been used to to great effects both here in Australia and, and globally that's just helping to drive some of the thinking around reworking or pivoting. You speak about understanding clear problems just then and at the moment we're seeing a lot of content and, and commentary on the increasing need for us to embrace rapid strategic problem solving and I'm sure based on your earlier comments so far that creativity should and it will play an important role in that but how do you think we speed up the ability to get work done without compromising the quality of the output, the quality of the work itself. I fear this is a cliche, right? But this is the age old cost, quality, time triangle, right? And it's like any problem solving, if time and quality are the parameters that we need, then allow more budget, you know? And I think that agencies, you know, and I've worked at above the line agencies as well, you'd say the same thing, you know? And I think what we need is brands to understand and, and really importantly, brands to understand that there is the same degree of strategic thinking, if not more, than is needed for, to produce an above-the-line campaign, right? And the reason for that is the number of variables that we have to contend with in partnership marketing, right? And if, if I think back to my, to my time at um, above-the-line agencies, both you know, back in the UK and, and, and here when I moved out to, to Australia, you control everything. You write the script, you pick your talent, you choose what they're going to wear, you pick the location, the media place, everything. You control everything. You know, and equally, you can switch off an above-line campaign and, you know, sadly, most people will forget it ever ran. Whereas, you know, I think sponsorship marketing, it just simply doesn't get the degree of allocation, whether that's time or, or budget or importance, that, than it needs, which is why more often than not, you know, sponsorships almost somewhat metaphorically, but sponsorships are, are you know heavy sheds at the bottom of the backyard, plonked on a slab of quicksand. You know, it's it's crazy. You know, and I think that you know there's there's lots of agencies out there that can help with the activation side of things, but I don't think there's enough agencies out there that can do the deep strategic work that's actually needed to make sure that if we want a shed, you know, it's it's connected to the rest of the house and it's actually sat on concrete. 
So far, you've mentioned conversations around bringing disparate brands together to work together. You mentioned your impact assessment tool for cancelled events. It's clear there is a lot of great strategic thinking and conversations happening at your end. So I'm curious about what is the biggest lesson you think your team, your organization has learned so far in reworking or pivoting sponsorship strategies for clients? We've always been really close to the role of the the rights and assets mix in a deal and thinking up front, you know, how do we want to use this sponsorship before we go and lock in deals and, and, and assets? But you know, I think what we're now seeing across the business is a, is a greater detail of you know how we would stack opportunities for clients if we were being a bit more scrupulous with the dollars. You know, I think that a lot of proposals come with a wide gamut of you know assets in there, and I think what we're really, as an industry, what we're really good at doing is sort of breaking down how we're going to use them. But perhaps what we're not doing often enough is thinking, well, why have we got them in the first place, based on how we plan to use them? You know, and I think that. What's been interesting to see from our side is just across the business, whether it's people within the strategy function, creative function on in account services, just a deeper appreciation for the importance of getting that part right up front. And I think further to that, knowing that there's myriad ways to reach fans outside of traditional app match and signage, et cetera, it's also put a greater focus on the way that we, we use assets. And I think we'll see a lot more activity now whereby people are doing ambassador deals to complement a sponsorship because they're using those spokespeople within the campaign. And, you know, I think what's been interesting for me in my role in the, in the business here is being able to watch across the business, the energy and enthusiasm that, that we've shown for, for running towards all of this and, you know, really holding clients' hands through it all. I know it's a tough question to ask, the crystal ball questions. And I know you are in the middle of it, just like our, our listeners are. So it might be tough, but I'm going to ask you the question anyway. At the beginning of this pandemic, we saw a lot of content written about the positive impact that investment can have for brands during downtime, such as brand affinity and association, etc. And in fact, for those of us in comms and marketing who have careers, long-term careers in it, so often we know this, that there are opportunities in downturns, especially as competitors undermine their own position by reducing their investments. And you spoke earlier about people pulling the rug out from underneath partners, yet marketing and comms, despite that, they are the areas that are in the crosshairs where the budgets get slashed. That crystal ball question, where do you think we are in terms of budgets being slashed and budgets recovering, et cetera? Where are we, for want of a better phrase, in the life cycle of it all at the moment? It's funny, actually, earlier today, I was on the phone to a client and I think they've they've summed this up perfectly when they said that they feel like they're in the eye of the storm. And, you know, it's kind of like we've gone through this incredible upheaval, you know, and the the toil that that brought with it. But then there's almost this eerie, eerie sort of silence now, you know, as normal practice resumes. And I think it's almost like people are people have been hiding under the desk and they've kind of reemerged and they're looking around and realizing that life still goes on. And, you know, and I think really what we're doing now is we're living in that new normal, you know, and I think that we're seeing a lot more conversations about how we move forward and how we positively pivot than we are about whether we should be funding something at all. You know, I think it's it's a shame that we've had to experience it like this, but, you know, I think these things these things do make us stronger. You know, I think it's it's been a very stuttered start to the year. You know, it's like, it's funny, but it's, it's like running a marathon and stopping for a wee only to realize it's a phantom feeling. Like you've just got to get up and running again. You've taken all that momentum out right? It's a bit of a random analogy, but funny enough, it happened to me at the London Marathon. But I think the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, like many things, sponsorship is about setting a cadence that that marries up to or mirrors how fans interact. And I keep thinking about this, but at no point during this whole pandemic have fans stopped being fans. They've not stopped caring. They've not stopped following. They've been reading everything they can. They've been following in social, wearing t-shirts, opening apps. They've not. We've not once had a situation where fans aren't fans. But so, so why as an industry did we stop talking? You know, that's that's the part for me which I just. The shame is that we've lost the cadence and we've lost our momentum. The opportunity now is to re-establish that cadence and momentum, but on stronger foundation. 
The client you spoke to earlier today said it feels like we're in the eye of the storm and, and now people are starting to come out from hiding under their desks. And so to bring that a little bit closer to home and find out a little bit more about your clients, how have you found Octagon clients generally in their approach to the response to the pandemic? Take us inside some more of those conversations and, and what their concerns are and, and ultimately what the mood is like in relation to sponsorships at the moment. It would be somewhat easy for me to toot the trumpet here, so I <laughs> so I will. But no, I think we've seen some we've seen some nervy times. I think with rights holders and and the the challenges they've faced that have thrown things into disarray for our clients. But I think that um, on balance and across the board, what we have seen is a lot of composure and conviction. You know, and I said earlier about the general attitude is about camaraderie and how do we stick together and get through something, as opposed to headless chooks and you know what what happens next. You know, and I think. One thing I feel has led to that is that we've always had a big hand to play in our clients' contracts, and hence we know the contracts as in- intimately as they do, and therefore together we've been able to, to sort of remain focused on what we need to achieve. And and I think really importantly, you know, th- these these sort of periods of time, it's about how you manage up. You know, it's 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 the message that you send up to the C-suite, to the boards. You know, and I think that what our clients have been doing really, really well is is managing that communication flow and the stakeholder engagement just to keep the right degree of support and appreciation for what we're trying to achieve, albeit at the same time, you know, give me a bit of rope here because there is a lot of uncertainty. It's tools like the impact assessment tool that that Hodgie and our strategy team and, and his cronies created that have helped clients with that side of things. But you know, I think it's just basics. It's a, it's about simple rigor that goes a long way to keep people in the life raft. But the one thing I did here is as an anecdote that I think really talks to my comment earlier about volatility is I had a, a, a coffee with a client last week who who heard from a, a former um, colleague of theirs who called up to say, hey, have you got any advice on how I can get out of sponsorship? And it kind of goes back to my thing, you know, my, my general concern, which is as an industry, how do we how do we make people want to come into sponsorship and stay? You know, and I think that to that comment of of uh, don't waste a good crisis. You know, these are the these are the tasks that are written up on my wall in my office that that need to be considered and addressed, and not just glossed over and walked past. You mentioned earlier about trying to get the cadence back in place, and then you just said then that it's all about how do we get people back into sponsorship. So let's pivot to the types of conversations you're seeing in the industry from the the agency side. How do you see the next 6 to 12 months with those focuses that you've spoken about so far? How do you see the next 6 to 12 months impacting brand and agency-based roles like planners and strategists? The uncertainty brings with it a sort of a, a fairly broad and deep set of questions that the clients present to us. I think that what we'll see is a lot more consideration given for the strategy and planning function in agencies. I, I think we're seeing that here at Octagon. I, I hope our, our peers in the industry are as well. But I think the analogy I'd, I'd like to use on this is, is that you know it's, it's about planning the grocery shop. What we're seeing is when you shop on a whim, you throw a lot of food out at the end of the week. Whereas when you shop with a list, you, you end up maximizing the value. And I think it's the same in sponsorship. So, you know, I think that the um, the brands that we're working with, you know, they need to be feeling comfortable in asking those questions up front and not fearing, you know, that as a negative perception, you know, in terms of them not able to, to do that piece of work themselves. And the other thing we'll see um, is more modeling done around um, various scenarios. I think one thing that's been challenging for all of our clients in this is that, you know, there's almost like a secular nature to it, you know, and if I think to a big piece of work we do every year with MasterCard and the Australian Open in January, we got through that event, you know, and I think the guys at Tennis Australia counts on their lucky stars that they were they were left relatively unscathed. But of course, now we're coming back around to a point in time where we're working on the campaign for AO21, but there is now no certainty as to what AO21 looks like. And I think to their credit, the guys at TA have done a remarkable job of sort of scenario planning how things might play out. But it's it's fair to say that what we're seeing now from the client side and therefore also within our strategy and planning function is is increased need for agility. You know, so we're we're briefing on campaigns, but we're we're looking at it to say, well, what's the, we were calling it, what's the minimum viable product for the campaign? You know, and then how do you layer in 
different elements of the campaign based on the different scenarios that have been provided by the rights holder. You know, so I think that the next six to 12 months, and, and actually that's probably too short a window, I think it's probably the next 12, 18 months, maybe 24, that I think you're going to see a closer coming together of, of rights holder, key rights holder partners, key brand partners and, and strategy and planning to make sure that, you know, people are being given the adequate time to, to sort of work through this. I know you've coined the term in the past, corporate panic buying. Can you explain what you mean by that? And then what needs to happen for a brand manager to be confident about buying strategically again in the future? Yeah, I mean, it's, it was a bit of a funny one. It's a bit of a, a whim comment at the time. But <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, it's funny. We saw fights with toilet paper that shot the world, but we've also heard of brands filling budgets, hands over fists. And that was where that comment came from, which was there was this real sort of quick sort of response to things where budgets were being pulled and, and programs were being pulled. You know, that money goes back into a central pot and brands would then need to bid on it in, in future. And it, it, it frustrated me to see our industry lose composure so quickly. You know, it's, and, and it goes back to my point, especially when you remember that fans didn't stop being fans. You know, and, and actually, I think that you know, what should have been done at the point in time is to say, let's pump the let's pump the brake, possibly put the handbrake on, and actually reconsider how we leverage this to our advantage. You know, and that's where corporate panic buying came came from. I think in, in many ways it comes down to fear. You know, quite quickly, as soon as share price takes a tumble, so do rolls. You know, and I think it's very fair to see why why uh, why one might feel that pulling money to put back into the corporate coffers is is doing the right thing. But again, it's it's this cadence thing. It's a marathon analogy. Like you stop for no reason, you know. And I think, you know, we've we've got to give credit to these people that, you know, organisations, you know, certainly for for a decent period of time haven't lived through such vulnerability. But when what you read in the media is huge job cuts and and sweeping cuts delivered to people via email, it's going to put everyone on edge, you know. And I think we were the, we were the the full guy to that, you know. I think what brand managers should have done and should be doing is going back to the objectives, going back to the start, considering how they can pivot on the sponsorship and how it can address the new the new challenges that they're being presented with. If some of us have missed opportunities to make those smart decisions and, and smarter considerations and the comments around corporate panic buying, for those that aren't concentrating on reducing marketing and comm spend, what types of investments or opportunities are you seeing at the moment for brands in the sponsorship space that spark some interest and excitement from you? Look at it this way. Clubs in the in the EPL, right, English Premier League, would normally look at a 20 to 30% uplift in rights fees per cycle, right? And at the moment, they consider 0% uplift as growth. So I think it's 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 quite a clear sign that it's a buyer's market. You know, and there are so many opportunities to look at how a well-placed and strategically aligned sponsorship can can help get brands back on their feet. You know, and I think that there's some tremendous rights holders in this in this market, and we're blessed. You know, we've got more we've got more access to more codes and more professional teams than than other markets globally. You know, so you've there isn't going to be an outcome where there isn't the right type of opportunity for you. There there will be, but I think that because you know, the, the revenue requirements from rights holders, I think it, it puts brands in strong positions if they go into this in the right way. I think that the traditional hierarchy of partnerships is being challenged. I think that, you know, what's important, I think, is that rights holders don't fall into trap of fire sale, you know, and, and remain focused on equally on the brands that they themselves are trying to build. But I think is there's just a tremendous opportunity for brands that don't have partnerships right now to get one. Because I think that, it comes back to this purpose comment. You know, it's, it's far easy to, to demonstrate purpose when you can use something that people already care about, you know, and, and by and large, that's going to be a, a passion point more so than a brand. So I think it's, it's just going to be interesting. And the part I'd probably throw into that is I think, as I said earlier, you'll see more ambassador deals done um, as brands look for human ways to tell stories than, than just sort of the, the partnership itself. So definitely going to be you know quite exciting to see how how things adapt and how we change and just to add to that comment that you made andrew about the epl team seeing zero percent uptick as growth i read a story uh, a couple of days ago about how the newly promoted leeds united they are in the market for a new front of shirt sponsor and those conversations have been going on for a while in anticipation of hopefully getting promoted 
but they are now expecting a 40% reduction in income from that front of shirt sponsor just because of what we're going through. So those comments about it being a buyer market, absolutely agree with you. How do you see the perception of value and use of assets or entitlements changing considering it's a buyer's market? Do you think we'll see some assets as more valuable than they used to be, maybe that IP stuff that you were talking about earlier or perhaps even the opposite in that some will devalue from the perspective of, well, we can't use that anymore or we've come to realise that these weren't as valuable as, as once thought? You use the word perceived value, which I think is interesting there. You know, because why are we perceiving value and, and not knowing actual value? You know, that's a somewhat of a, a side thought. But I think that measurement is 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 a key piece to, to all of this. You know, and I think what we'll hundred percent see in all of this is more time that's given to to the measurement side of things than we have before. You know, I'll, I'll give an example. We want to pitch a couple of years back, huge brand in this marketplace, and one of the key reasons we won the pitch was our ability to measure and track change in greater detail than, than their, their current solution for that. You know, but when appointed, we were never actually asked to do the work. You know, so I can't, can't imagine in the future we will find similar challenges. But you know, like that, that's, the, that's the point about perception. How do you prove perception of, of value? But I think the second piece in relation to, to value of assets is their relationship one to another. You know, I think historically, one of the hardest things to, to measure or value in a sponsorship was the, the value of IP. You know, and as such, you know, we work in reverse to get to assume values, i.e., if you combine all of the value of tangible elements together, what's left could only be IP. What else could it be? Right. You know, and I think that what that's done over time is it just puts brands focus in, in totally the wrong area. You know, there's so many sort of post campaign reports you see where the media exposure alone is is well more than pays for the deal. Therefore, while there might have been some rough edges, you know, we've we've got what we've got back more than we paid for. You know, and I think it, it negatively educates the market that brand exposure is the most important thing of sponsorship, which for me is I can't get my head around that. You know, I think it's cra- I think it's crazy, and I will tell you why I think it's crazy is if you bought a sponsorship just to put your logo in front of fans, that is literally as absurd as signing off a brand new thirty second TV ad with just your logo on the screen. Like it doesn't do anything, doesn't say anything, doesn't land anything, doesn't make you feel anything. You know, and that is ultimately, we're, we're littered with it. There's just brand, brand slapping here, there and everywhere. And I think that that's the part where I think we'll see a lot more interrogation going into actually how we move away from that and, and have more of a logo last thinking and recognize that it's the IP that needs to be front and center because the reality is that's the light bulb. That's the moss and the moss of the light bulb, you know, with, with fans. I think it's, it's IP and it's their passion points branding and, and meaning that they notice from a sea of logos you know and it's it's that association it's that power of that ip that they will choose to buy over other things i think we're going to see a huge shift um towards what i would say actual sports and entertainment marketing right not just sports and entertainment brand placement you know and i think i think further to that then comes the role of spokespeople and you know we, we, we will see more deals with clubs supported by separate ambassador deals etc you make some very interesting points there, and this next question feels like it fits perfectly, even though I wrote it before we jumped on this call. So let's pretend you're a brand therapist and a rights holder's come to your clinic to speak to you about how they can overcome some revenue challenges and what comes next in strategic planning, and they're lying on the therapist's couch. What types of questions are you asking them to help them see the world the right way as we are now do you know what the questions i'd be asking them when they're nice and calm on the couch is who are you where are you in your journey where are you heading why do people love you what's stopping you from being the greatest the biggest brand in in sports and entertainment right now you know and i think the the reason why i'd be asking those sort of soul searching questions is because i think rights holders you know they need to exercise more self-respect and align with brands who complement and enable them just as much as putting much needed funding in you know and i think that we've got a saying that it's the company you keep that says as much about you as as what you say yourself you know and i think that rights holders have to remember that they are a brand they are a product 
you know, you don't you don't see all these um, fantastic products in in any category that just don't invest in their brand and don't look at innovation and evolution and, and product proof points. They just become redundant. I think that rights holders are under so much pressure to deliver value and revenue that they're not given as much time to invest in the brand. But I think if if those that do invest in the brand drive greater value as, as a result of doing that, it's like if you, yeah, I think it's it's the key to unlocking something that's way more powerful and putting that right type of investment into them. The thing that rights holders have got that I think is is so powerful is that they hold the key to unlocking something that's way more powerful than any brand in existence can, right? And that's that's this passionate audience that they have. You know, they are the gatekeeper. You know, they 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 know how to talk to people. They know when to talk to their fans. You know, I think that they they need to remember that. You know, they have a huge amount of, of value to play in marketing. You know, I've, I've always thought that, you know, I'll be doing my job properly if I never sell a thing in my life. And that's because I'll, I'll do it in such a way where people will see the value and therefore want to buy it. You know, and I think rights holders need to sort of think about what are the right brands to associate myself with? What are the right brands that are going to help me get ahead? You know, it's it's interesting. I, I read a paper of a, a tennis event over in, in China, and one of their challenges was that they wanted to have Rolex and, and, and Mercedes-Benz as, as partners. You know, and it's we, you, you can't just click your fingers and have these. You know, the, the, the other events that have those as partners have, have grown the events, they've invested in their brand. You know, you need to you need to be prepared to do the legwork if that's the outcome that you want to that you want to get to. The passion point comments are important because it plays into what people, the audience care about and ultimately then are, are passionate about. And you recently shared some brief thoughts on LinkedIn about how we as an industry need to spend more time and energy around what consumers genuinely care about, not what we as an industry care about telling them. Your point of not making a sponsorship an afterthought or something discretionary and those earlier comments around it being purpose-driven, it's a timely reminder of the types of messages both brands and rights holders can get across via a sponsorship. I appreciate it's a super loaded question, but how do we get better at showcasing the passion points or, or consumer interests that we want to connect with? It's got to come down to the interest that organizations have in maximizing the channel. You know, I've, I've always thought if I, if I was a CMO, my first week in the role would be spent obviously learning about our business and our products and our service and you know, why customers buy from us. And I think that once I've got that in, you know, understanding, I think my second week would be spent on learning what my consumers care about. You know, what is it that makes them tick? What do they spend their recreational cash on? And I think from that point, I'd be looking at what areas as an organization, knowing our brand, our products or service or whatever, what, what areas can we make a genuine commitment and positive difference to? And then I'd be looking at how do I recalibrate my, my budget around that, around those interests? Because I think that for as long as we all walk this earth, breathing in oxygen and, and closing our eyes to sleep at night, passions will always mean more than brands do to us. You know, it's, and I, I think that, you know, ultimately that's, that's where this gets to is that consumers' interests are more persuasive and mean more than products and services that we buy. So why wouldn't we use them more to access consumers' wallets? Any marketing tactic could be executed either as part of a sponsorship or, or, or just as part of a, a marketing plan that doesn't include sponsorship. But like I said, any marketing tactic could be part of a sponsorship. We're both sort of traditional marketers and, and we're old enough to remember the times before digital dominated everything. Do you think we'll ever see a resurgence in in previous tactics or what we might call more traditional offline tactics, maybe things like direct mail or maybe even radio? Because so often the industry, the marketing and comms industry and therefore sponsorship industry as a flow on is looking for the new and the shiny ways to engage audiences, yet they're can often be value in existing tactics, especially if our competitors just abandon them and, and chase the next shiny thing, leaving us maybe to dominate a, a certain tactic or a channel more easily. And because while the digital spaces has shaken things up, it is both crowded and fragmented in that digital space, isn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. We actually had a conversation earlier today on our team ramp-up call where a piece of work was shared to stimulate conversation, and it was an old print ad from Volkswagen, and it was the Beetle ad. It's quite iconic, and it's just the headline is Lemon. And it was it was shared as a, as a great reminder of what print medium can do for, for brands in terms of the ability to have a bit more space to tell a story. You know, and I almost think we've forgotten about some of those tactics in there. And, and when you think of the sports and entertainment landscape, you know, there is a big role for printed media in and around those events, whether it's programs or catalogs or whatever, you know, that I think, I think probably we have, we have lost sight of, of the role that those pieces can, can deliver for us. And we've chased things that are measured in microseconds of exposure which is which is pretty interesting like i think the you know sustainability will always be a key piece and i think that dm as a as a particular piece you touch on there you know i think there'll always be a, a place for that in the world but i think that you've got to find a way of doing it while reducing the amount of significant wastage that comes as a result of that with radio though i think that um i think it's really interesting you know i think that you know, when you listen to the radio, it's like listen to a podcast, like you, you absorb messages so differently because you're, you, all you're doing is you're listening. You can't, you, you're not looking at anything. You might be getting distracted, but you know, you're, you're absorbing it more deeply, you know, which I think is pretty interesting. I think that brands will always look for the opportunity to tick while others tack, you know, but I think it's going to always, it should always come down to where are your audience? You know, what, what, what channels are they using? When do they use them? Why they use them? And what relationship does that have to, to the sponsorship that you can then commercialize? You know, you can, you can use that to your advantage. You know, I think that one thing I'd add is, is sort of the strength of sports and entertainment is that it's the only thing we still want to consume live. You know, and I think that that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be lost. And I think if, if from a, from a media planning and buying perspective, from an audience standpoint, we know where they are, like geographically. Is it is it is it a venue? Is it is a music concert? What is it? So we know where they are geographically. We know when they're there, right? These things aren't advertised five minutes before they happen, right? We can plan. We know who they're with, like typically speaking, who do they attend these these experiences with? And really importantly, we know why they're there, you know, and that's some of the, the research that we that we run through our passion drivers tool to understand why fans are fans. You know, I, I look at that, and as you say, coming from, from traditional agency background, I look at that and think that is a staggering amount of information that can mean that I can be way more targeted when I'm marketing to my consumers around their passions than when I'm hoping that they're going to be engaging through through other things, you know, other, other points in their week. But it's, it's, it beggars belief why you don't see the same degree of detail that goes through the fans equivalent of a path to purchase. You know, when, when you're looking at the, these major events, the degree of media planning and buying that goes in and around the events, like I think that's definitely an opportunity that should be tightened up. You've mentioned so much great stuff in this chat. It's been amazing. And I love all the little analogies that you've given. And lots of it has been so much about going forward and looking forward with positivity so from a trying to wrap this all up perspective, can you summarize what you think the structure, another crystal ball question, can you summarize what you think the structure of sponsorship deals will change to be like post-COVID-19? I think more consideration. There'll be less sort of reactions, less sort of quick thoughts. There'll be more strategic thinking. There'll be actual brand linkage. Like the closer, the closer sponsorship gets to brand objectives, the better. But in my time at a sponsorship agency, I've not been sat at the table when brand objectives are being discussed and interrogated as often as I did when I was at an above-the-line agency. So there's, there's that challenge to overcome. But I, I think ultimately, it's actual marketing through sports and entertainment, right? So it's not logo slapping. It's about actually sitting down and saying, how do we use this opportunity, which means so much to people, to our advantage? So it's, that would be my, if all of that can come true, then I think we'll be happy. <laughs> You'll be walking around with a big smile on your face. Yeah, that's it. Andrew, if the listeners want to connect with you and keep the conversation going or find out more about what Octagon does, maybe how it can help them, what can they do? 
reach out to me directly um, in email, andrew.clark with an E at octagon.com. You can follow some of our campaign work on our Instagram channel, which is at octagonau. Or if you want to go old school and have a phone call and arrange a cup of coffee, then you can give me a buzz on 0498-647-137. Outstanding. And listeners, we'll put all the links and notes for that up in the show notes uh, on the website. Andrew Clark, Agency Director, Octagon Australia. Thank you so much for coming on the show and taking us inside an agency and its work during COVID. You're more than welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Amazing insights and thoughts from Andrew. And as I said to him at the end there, I really like all those little analogies and quotes that he builds into the way he frames the industry for us. I especially like the Churchill quote of never squander a crisis and also the one around going shopping with a list or not shopping with a list. Great stuff. As Andrew said, you can connect with him via email or call him as well as follow Octagon Australia on Instagram through at Octagon Australia. And of course, visit octagon.com or connect with Andrew on LinkedIn. And of course, all those links and the details are in the show notes at coresoftware.com for this show. That's a wrap for episode 86. Thank you so much for joining me. And a reminder to get in contact and drop me a line and say hi and, and get a shout out on the show just like Brad and Nitin did. As I always say, I get a huge buzz out of hearing from you. Even if you've reached out before, say hi again. Or if you're new, please connect with me on LinkedIn and I'll give you a shout out on the show. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Loyston. That's O-Y-S-T-O-N. And if you do, as I said, I'll make sure I give you a shout out. And if you want to connect with Core Software's commercial director, APAC, Daniel Collier-Hill, you can catch him on daniel.collier, C-O-L-L-I-E-R at coresoftware.com or search for him on LinkedIn as well. Until next time, I'm Daniel Loyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.